Welcome to Easter, everybody. Glad you're here. My name's Micah. Probably not the most typical Easter service you've ever been to, but uh, I love Easter. I tell you, I tell you what. I can't see you guys, so I'm going to close this. But I love Easter, and uh, it is it is by far and away my uh, most favorite time of of year on the church calendar. As far as you know, you know we, we celebrate Christmas and Advent and all these things, but Easter is hands down my favorite. I love this time of season. Um, there's so much. Uh, the profound nature of what happened at Easter just blows me away every time I begin to think about it. Uh, and it's always connected to spring, of course, and spring being my favorite time of the year. I love the flowers that are blooming. Uh, I, I love the smell of the flowers that are blooming. I mean, for crying out loud, Home Depot even smells good. Has anybody been to Home Depot recently? Usually you go in there and it's like that combo smell of like, you know, you, uh, rubber and uh, paint and concrete and you know, commercial buildings, but it smells like hyacinths when you walk in the door. I love spring, and I love Easter. Um, and if you're into sports, this is, of course, a great time of year, right? Big game tomorrow night. Any Butler fans out there? Huh? How about that? Yeah, let's take down those blue, Duke, blue, Duke, whoever they are. Guys, that's the Final Four basketball. Um, uh, season opener, the Twins, new stadium. This is big, right? And, of course, my favorite sporting event of the spring which would be the Masters, which they play in Georgia. Has anybody ever watched the Masters on TV? The azaleas in Georgia this time of year are absolutely breathtaking. It's amazing. I love Easter. The great songs of church at Easter, right? I mean, you know, um, Christ the Lord is risen today. You know that one? We didn't sing in that tonight, but we love the song. Uh, I remember singing that as a kid at my, my, the church I grew up at. And my grandma, bless her heart, she was in the choir, and uh, my brothers and I, we were ruthless. I don't know if you guys ever did this, but um, you know the whole vibrato thing? Oh, that bit? My brothers and I would like sit in the front row, and we'd be like, pss, 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 and we would do, and my parents would just be like, knock it off, knock it off. But, uh, you know, of course, the great songs of the church at Easter and uh, Christ arose, right? Low in the grave he lay, and up from the grave he arose with triumph and all this stuff. So much to celebrate at Easter. So much. Such a beautiful, wonderful time of year. But actually, when you stop and you think about it, this whole thing starts with death. It starts with somebody who dies. Uh, Easter, everything that we celebrate at Easter, the pinnacle of the Christian story, the story of God found in the scriptures, like the climax of it, and it's all surrounding an event where somebody dies. Right? And death, of course, in our culture uh, is something that we fear. It's something that we try to uh, move away from. It's something that we try to deny. We try to delay. We try to pass on, skirt around. And yet, of course, we know that um, this is all of our fate. Every single one in this room. And, and I don't know. I don't, I don't want to be a downer, you know, Debbie Downer tonight. But um, the reality is that. I, at some point, and you at some point, all of us are going to end up in a box just like this. And yet Easter is connected to this event where somebody dies. And so tonight, I want to spend some time working through the implications of Easter. And I want to spend some time working through the event or the implications of this particular death of Jesus. Because, of course, the, the, the death of Jesus was like no other death. And and and. So much more was involved than 
most other deaths. And so I want to work out the implications of this event of Easter and what we celebrate. And so I want to start with sort of this framework or this paradigm, this uh, uh, little phrase that will guide our time tonight. And it's essentially this. The resurrection of Christ reminds us dot, dot, dot. The resurrection of Jesus reminds us dot, dot, dot. And I, I probably am not going to say anything new tonight. And the challenge of being a guy like me and, and other people who do this for a living is that every year Easter comes up and Christmas comes up. And we have to be creative and try to tell the story in such a way that it's fresh and new and enlivening and invigorating. And so the content of the story never changes, though. That's the tricky part. How do you be creative with something that's been told over and over and over and over and over and over again for thousands and thousands of years? But more often, we find in the scriptures this word of remember, 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 or let me remind you. Jesus says it over and over to his disciples. Remember this, that the Jews in the Old Testament had these rituals, these liturgies that they did as a community that essentially helped them remember because if you're anything like me, I forget all the time. And our hearts and our minds get captivated by and they wander and by all sorts of different things. And so what I want to do tonight is remind us of a couple of key items that we, that we can sort of hang on at Easter. And so we're going to do that by, by saying the resurrection reminds us of dot, dot, dot. So my first idea is this. I want, to, I want to spend some camp on this idea. The resurrection of Jesus reminds us that the worst has been defeated. The worst that the enemy can give us or throw at us has been defeated. In case you didn't know, there is an enemy of God out there. There is an enemy, and according to the scriptures, his name is Satan, uh, uh, Satan, or he uh, translated the adversary, right? In the story of God as recorded in the scriptures, there is an enemy of God, and he's alive and active in the world, and he's opposing, based on the definition of, of enemy, he's opposing the, de- the desires and the will of God, and he's inflicting as much pain and harm as possible. You and I maybe have been on the receiving end of some of that pain and infliction. Maybe, unfortunately, we've been on the giving end of that, and we feel terrible about it. But you and I both know that there is a, a, there's something else going on out here, and there is an enemy of God. Now, the enemy of God, of course, he opposes God and the very thing, the very essence, the very nature of God. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some red ones in the seats in front of you there. Genesis chapter 1 is, of course, the beginning of the story. And it chronicles the creation of the world. It's the story of creation. So in Genesis chapter 1... Remember, the enemy of God opposes the very nature, the very essence of who God is. So we've got to figure out or look at, who, what do we know about this God? What kind of a God is he? Genesis chapter 1, God sets the stage for what he's about to do. So in Genesis chapter 1, you get, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So this is the intro, and then the, the writer launches into the account the poetic account of how God made the world. And the first three days, you get God basically setting the stage for what is about to happen, what he's about to do, which would be the, 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 the pinnacle of his creative moment. So in verses uh, 11 and 12, God basically creates the... Um, I'm sorry, back up. Verses 3 to 5, God separates light from darkness. And then in verses 6 to 8, 
These are all days where it says, and God said, let there be light, la, la, la. Verse 6, God said, let the expanse between the waters to separate from the water. So he separates uh, light from darkness, and then he separates like the atmosphere from the sky. And then in verses 9 and 10, he distinguishes between the earth and water, right? So there's this formless void, and there's water everywhere, and God distinguishes between that which is land and that which is water. So the first couple of verses, God sets up, or the the narrator sets up, what God is about to do in verses 11 and following. And this is where we get, verse 11, it says, And God said, I'm sorry, uh, not, not verse, yeah, there it is, I was down on 14. Verse 11, God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. So the narrator tells us that God, when he speaks... Life happens. Life comes out of his speaking, which is a bizarre idea. But when, the, when God, this being, when he speaks, life happens. And so in verses 11 and 12, God creates the trees and the plants. All the things that grow out there, God creates them. And then verses 13 to 19, God creates the day, the night, the stars, the sun, and the moon. All the things that continue to give the plants and trees life. Right, This system that helps support the things that he's just created, this life that he's made. Verse 20, then God fills the sea with all the creatures, right? The oceans, the seas, the lakes, the rivers, all the things that live underwater, God makes them. He speaks and life happens. Verse 24, God fills the earth with animals and living creatures and beings. And then in verse 26, we get to the... The, 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 the climax, the epicenter, the sort of trajectory at which creation is going, you get to this moment in verse 26 where God creates humans and he breathes life into them. So God, at his very core, at the very essence, the very nature of this God, he's a life-giving being. Now back to the enemy piece. Every enemy tries to do its worst to the person on the other side, to whoever they oppose. So the enemy of God, they, 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 he pulls out all the stops. You invest all your resources here in hopes that whatever you're about to do will cause the most damage and do the most harm. If you're the enemy of God, where do you spend your time or what do you focus on if God in his essence, his very nature, is a life-giving force What's the antithesis of that? Death. Death is the worst that the enemy can offer, can put, toward, put out there towards what God has made. So if God in his very nature is a life-giving force, if you're the enemy of God, what you would do to get at the core of who he is, to decimate, to go for the jugular, right, to go for the W, to take him down, what you're going to do is try to take that which is most precious to God which is life. And so the enemy of God focuses his attention on death. Resurrection, when Jesus dies on a cross and is risen, right? We talk about he's risen. And by the way, I'm, how many of you guys, uh, when you know the traditional Easter thing, when somebody, the pastor says, he's risen, you're supposed to say, he's risen indeed, right? <laughs> I, I don't like it when people tell me what to do. And I don't like it when people, like when it's forced. I always just kind of like, ah, gosh, I hate this part. Not that I don't believe it, but I just don't, I just don't, you know, if, if I feel it, like if it's in the moment and it's spontaneous, I'm like, risen indeed, baby. Well, but when somebody says, he's risen and everybody, you're supposed to do it. So I'm not going to make you do that. I'm not going to make you do that. 
But Jesus has risen, right? What has he risen from? Has he, has he gotten out of bed? Did he oversleep? Is he a teenager that needs more sleep? Has he like risen in the political polls? His stock is up. He's risen. Risen from what? He's risen from the dead because the dead, death, this coffin, what, we, what you and I are insured of is the worst the enemy can offer. Why? Because at the very essence, at the very core, the very nature of God is a life-giving God. And so if you're the enemy of God, of course, you would go there. So resurrection reminds us that the worst that the enemy has to offer has been beaten, has been defeated. Every single person in this room is headed for right here. We will all die, and it's certain. But at Easter, and this is why I love it, it's so fantastic. At Easter, God speaks a definitive word and makes a definitive action in history, in time, that says the worst that the enemy has to offer has been beaten, has been swallowed up, has been sundered. Amen and amen and amen. That's good news, gang. I love it. Oh. You're Baptists, aren't you? Come on, that's good news, isn't it? This is good stuff. It's good stuff. The worst that the enemy has to offer has been beaten. I would say, secondly, we find we're reminded at Easter that we are powerless to do what needs to be done. We, we are powerless to do what needs to be done. If this is our fate, every single one of us, and God who created us is a life-giving force, then this is not supposed to be. This is not the way the world is supposed to end. This is not the way our lives are supposed to end. God had a totally different plan, a totally different intention. But of course, you know, in the garden, we chose a way that was different, a way that was other than what God said was life. God said, this is what life is, and Adam and Eve chose this. This is what is to become of us. And none of us can stop it. This is like a runaway train heading down the tracks and you're on it. You're, you're under it. You can't get away from it. Bad news, everybody. Bad news. We're powerless to do what we need to do, which is figure out a way to escape this. Because if, if we're created in the image of God and God is a life-giving force, then life is a part of our DNA and, it, and it's supposed to be. But this is not. Turn to Romans chapter 5, if you would, in the New Testament, past the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 5, one of the great books of the Bible that talks about the, the, all of the implications of Jesus and the cross and what has happened. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says this, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, when we couldn't do anything, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man some might possibly dare to die. But verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still powerless sinners, Christ died for us. Resurrection reminds us that we're powerless to do what needs to be done. Sin and evil and the enemy has, has gotten a hold of us so deeply that we're powerless to do anything to change this fact. We're all going there, and we can't stop it. Uh, we can't delay it. We can't run away from it. We can't avoid it. We can't, no one is exempt from it. 
and we're helpless and grasping for what we were intended for, which is life, and yet this is what's coming our way. Uh, I want to show you a video clip, which I think kind of depicts this. So uh, this is a classic movie. Many of you have seen this. But this idea that we can't do what needs to be done, I think is illustrated by this. So go ahead and watch this if you would. Side by side with a friend. I. I could do that. will be in blossom, and the birds will be nesting in the hazel thicket, and they'll be sowing the summer barley in the lower fields, and eating the first of the strawberries with cream. Do you remember the taste of strawberries? Sam, I can't recall the taste of food. No, Sound of water, touch of grass, naked in the dark. There's, there's nothing, no veil between me and the way of fire. I can see him with my waking eyes. Then let us be rid of it once and for all. Come on, Mr. Frodo. I can't carry it for you. But I can carry you. Come on! weakness and our inability to do it, to do what needs to be done, to be what we've been made to be, 
to do what we've been made to do, Christ has taken upon himself our burden, our death. And he's made it his own. Resurrection reminds us that Christ has conquered death on our behalf. And he has done for me and for the world what we can't do on our own. I love that story. I love that movie because I think it tells the story of what's going on, uh, which is why I think it connects with the hearts of so many people. Resurrection reminds us of the fact that the worst has been defeated. We're powerless to do uh, what what needs to be done. And last, I would say that Resurrection reminds us of what will someday be for those who are in Christ. Uh, the, question remains, the question that remains outstanding is this one. What will become of us? Right? How will it end? Or when it ends, what will happen? What will become of us? The enemy of God has taken hold of creation and he's taken hold of you and me. And by our own free will and our own choice, we've of course chosen death. We've chosen this way over the way that God has set before us. And so what will become of us? And I would say, I would argue, and I think Scripture teaches, that it all depends on what we do right here at this moment with this information. And it's, it, it's this bizarre paradox that it has nothing to do with you, and yet it has everything to do with you. What has happened has happened. What Christ has done has, has been done. And you can do nothing to stop it, change it, But what you do with that information, what you do with it, is up to you and up to me. Uh, Turn to Isaiah chapter 35, if you would, back in the the, the Old Testament. This is one of the prophets of God, and he's speaking about... You have to backtrack and sort of put yourself in a different timeline, right? Because Jesus has not come, and so the, the prophets of the Old Testament are talking about something that they look forward to. And it's this promised return of somebody that they didn't know who it was, who would, who would be a representative of God, who would do something decisively in the world uh, on behalf of God. And so when they talk about when this person returns, that's a lot of what happens in the, in the, in the, the prophetic books of the Old Testament, like Isaiah. Now, interestingly, in Isaiah 35, this is the way in which the prophet of God talks about the return of God. The desert and the parched land will be glad. Wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. And he goes on and talks about specific things to their culture and context. The glory of Lebanon, which was a beautiful place, will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. When the prophet of God talks about when when, when God returns, turns what's the picture he paints what language does he use life a desert that has been that's just blooming with with new growth and blossoms and then when the crocus comes up out of the ground so when the prophet of god paints the picture of what happens when god returns he paints the picture of life he paints the picture of this infusion of god's action in the world Resurrection ensures what God did for Jesus at Easter, he will do for all of creation that is in Christ. What God did for Jesus at Easter, God wants to do for all of creation, and he will do so for all of creation that is in Christ. Now, here's the tricky part. 
Creation, the world around us, has no volition. It has no will. It can't make decisions. It can't do anything for itself. It exists, right? God speaks and it's there. Creation itself, the Romans talks about the fact that when Adam and Eve chose to sin, that creation fell into the, the effects and the, 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 basically the track of, of, of death and what became of them. So creation has no say in the matter. And now, because of Christ, Jesus does something And I would say, I would submit to you that creation is in Christ. So creation has already been redeemed. What God did for Jesus at Easter, he will do for all of creation when he comes back. What will become of us? What will become of you and of me? That is the question that I want you to to, to think about and press into tonight. Scripture says that anyone in Christ... God wants to do and will do what he did for Jesus at Easter. And if this is our reality, if this is where we're headed because of the decisions that have been made, because of sin, because of all of that, God wants to do and will do what he did for Jesus at Easter for all of creation, anyone who is in Christ. So my question to you tonight is, where do you stand on that? Where, do you, where does that sit? How does that meet you? A friend of mine uh, just the other day was asking, or we were asking him uh, in, in a little gathering of, of pastor folks, he's looking to be ordained, and um, they essentially said, what is the hope of the Christian story? At the end of the day, when you boil it all down, what's the hope of the Christian gospel? And essentially, in, in, in no uncertain terms, he essentially got to this point where, where it was the hope of the story of God, the hope of the gospel, is that when we die, we'll get to go to heaven, which is elsewhere. And I want you to know tonight that I don't think that that's the hope of the gospel. I don't think that that is the hope of the story of God that we find in the scripture, because Paul Uh, Jesus, over 45 times in the New Testament, resurrection is the hope of the story of God. The fact that God did this, rose Jesus from the dead at Easter, that's the hope of the Christian story. Because, gang, let's just think about this. If after we die, our bodies stay dead and buried into the ground and decay and decompose, and that's it, and we go to another place and we're spirit, right? Who wins? Death. That cannot be the story of the gospel. Logically, biblically, it doesn't add up. But if Jesus is the second Adam, this new human, and God says, this is what it means to live life fully. Jesus takes our sin to death, is buried, and then is resurrected. My question to you is this. Why do we think that our reality after death will be different than that of Jesus if we are in Christ? So my question to you tonight, the hope of the gospel, the hope of Easter, is not heaven someday when we die, but eternal life resurrected from the dead And made new in God's new heaven and new earth. Where God's desires, heaven and earth, his creation become one place. Because that's the picture we get in Revelation 21 and 22. 
And every Easter, every day, every waking moment, God stands here and looks you and I in the face and says, this is reality, and this is where we're all headed. But I I have offered another way. I have made possible a way to be relationally connected with God again, to be in that life-giving relationship that we were meant to have. And Jesus says, anyone who will follow me, anyone who will trust what I have done on the cross, will then take part in my resurrection. That's the hope of the gospel, gang. And that's the story and the invitation that God invites you and extends to you tonight. I'm going to invite the band to come, and we're going to sing a couple more songs as we close. As they do, if you would just uh, bow with me as we, as we pray. I want to just give you an opportunity to think, if you would. Uh, this is the story of Easter. And maybe if I could just pose a couple of questions for you. Uh, in light of some of this information, in light of these truths of Scripture, what does resurrection really mean? Have you trusted Christ for what he did? What we're powerless to do on our own? And this church and this community and and me as your pastor uh, do this every week and stand up here and talk about this because I believe it's life. I believe it's the most important thing we could ever talk about. And the example in the life that Jesus offers is... I would argue the anchor in the midst of all the craziness that we experience in life, the thing that we can hang on to and trust as true. And so would you just take a moment in the quietness of your own heart and consider um, what does resurrection mean? What does Easter mean to you this year? And is there any new information that you need to think about and wrestle with? Has God met you at all tonight in a new way and challenged you? And then we'll sing some uh, together to close. So if you would, take some time to think about that.